My guest today is a very important member of Paul McCartney's Wings from 1978 to 1981. He's played on Ringo Starr's album Stop and Smell the Roses and has been a very distinguished session player with his styles of acoustic playing in the past 40 years. It's Lawrence Schubert. So, what were your earliest influences with Spanish guitar? My earliest influences were you know, English pop in the early 60s. So, um, you know, our version of Elvis was Cliff Richard um, and his backing group was The Shadows who were really quite successful in England. Uh, they were kind of like the English version of The Ventures. It's all twangy, twangy guitar instrumentals. Um, but it was really, I, I think, you know, 1963 was when I started playing guitar, and that was really the year of Beatlemania. So the Beatles were an important influence, but then also the Stones and the Animals and, you know, all the English bands. What, what became known as the British Invasion was really, you know, of course, it wasn't, we weren't invaded. I mean, it was all homegrown stuff. So um, we, uh, that really was what motivated me to play guitar. So jumping ahead a few years to the uh, late 70s, how did you uh, get into Wings? Well, I think you have to kind of backtrack a little bit on that because I, from the time I was about 13, my ambition was to become a studio guitar player, studio musician. I mean, it was just, that was really, for me, that was kind of the brass ring. Um, and so I, as a teenager, I just, I gigged as much as I possibly could. Um, I went to college and studied music. Um, I joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, and which was kind of like a farm team for studio musicians. And, and coming out of that uh, and, and graduating college, I went straight into studio work because I'd been seen on TV by a, um, a what in England we call them fixers. Uh, in the States, it's a contractor um, who booked musicians for, for sessions. And, and he, um, he liked my playing and, and got me started. Um, and I was very active, really, from like early 1975 uh, through to the time I joined Wings in April of, of 78. But in some in September of 77 I was playing lead guitar on a TV show with an English artist named David Essex he had a big hit with the song rock on which still still gets played these days um, and each week there would be a different musical guest on the show and one week was Denny Lane who was a member of wings and Denny liked my playing and recommended me to Paul and Linda um, although it wasn't a, a quick thing I mean it it was about six months before I actually got the call to go in an audition. So, you know, the, the journey was really teenager playing in bands, top 40 bands, whatever, you know, wh wherever I could make some money playing guitar. But also playing fingerstyle acoustic stuff, studying classical guitar, just doing a lot of kind of stuff to really kind of put myself in a place where I could be a professional guitar player. And then having this big break, you know, being uh, asked to join Wings was, uh, 
that was life-changing in, in a number of ways. But what it did was it pulled me out of the London studio scene. Um, yeah. And, uh, and put me in this, you know, in this band with, with, with a Beatle. Yeah. You've also done a lot of things with like Beatles related stuff. Like you've been to the fest a lot of times in these times. So could you, could you repeat that? You've been to the fest for Beatles fans. Oh yeah. Times in the past. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm Beatles adjacent, you know, I'm kind of got in that universe. And but working, working with Ringo was, was actually, it was a bit of a surprise because in the summer of 1980, Wings had just started um, rehearsing material for what would become the Tug of War album, which ended up not being Wings record. Um, but Paul asked me to go to France with him to work with Ringo on what became the Stop and St Smell the Roses record. Um, so that was my first time of meeting Ringo. Um, yeah. I was trying to transition to your solo albums, which you've made a impressive group of four Beatles guitar cover albums, which are some of the best Beatles re-recording albums. Well, and that, you know, again, that was a lengthy process because I, after Wings, I find I ended up moving to LA and starting a family and developing what had always been kind of part of my musical um, sensibility, which playing fingerstyle acoustic guitar. And I'd done a number of albums, starting in 1990. Um, I put out my first solo acoustic record. And I had over the years been you know, appearing at Beatlefests and playing a few arrangements you know, in my life, Martha, my dear, um, but not a lot. And then I, uh, people were kind of asking me to do more and I did an arrangement of Rain for my album Mosaic, which came out, I think in 98. And my wife Hope said, you know, I really want to have an album of you playing Beatle tunes. So if you don't do it for anybody else, at least do it for me. So I said, well, fine, if you want to produce it, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So that was my first LJ Plays the Beatles and that got very well received. And, and then when Paul heard it, he said, well, what about Wings? And so I did one of, of Wings and kind of post Beatles McCartney called One Wing. And then um, it just seemed appropriate to do a second album and then a third and then a fourth. I mean, it's, you know, that's why the third one was called LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, because the reality is that the, their repertoire is so vast and so rich that it just really lends itself very well to, be, to being um, arranged for solo guitar. Yeah, some of those, it's sometimes it's so simple, even some of the early stuff, which is a couple of chords and it can be very much interpreted on. But, but it's a couple of chords, but the way that those chords are arranged is always a little bit different. There's always a different, slightly different perspective on how those things get done. You know, take a song like She Loves You is really kind of a mashup of a lot of different stylistic influences, but, but the way that it all comes out is, is very definitively Beatles. So, you know, from a, as a mu musician, 
as a musicologist, as a guitarologist, a guitar player. The ability to be able to dive into repertoire like that um, is um, it's very satisfying and, and has led me into some interesting guitaristic discoveries. Um, but, you know, but I also do a lot of uh, arrangements of other people's tunes. Although when I started off doing solo acoustic guitar, it was really, it, I was doing it as a composer. That I didn't really do any arrangements for, until my, I think my third, fourth album. Fourth album. Um, and that was, that was Christmas stuff. So, you know, it was, it was hard to get me to get into doing Beatles because I really was focused on being a composer. But once I started it, then it was hard to stop. Yeah, going back to uh, 80, what was it like doing the Coogan's uh, Hall rehearsals with Wings? How really formal were they? Uh, which, you're talking about the tug of war stuff? Yeah, the, uh, I think like sec September, October 1980, so. Yeah, um, they were pretty informal. I mean, we were in a rehearsal hall. We, you know, basically it was just somewhere convenient for Paul and Linda to come to because they'd moved out of London, were living in Peasmarsh. Um, so that was pretty informal. We were, you know, Paul would come in with, with some songs and we'd, we'd toss them around. My frustration, looking back on it, is that, you know, these were not, really rock and roll songs. They were, you know, pop songs and, and kind of interesting, you know, Paul's kind of eccentricities as a, as a composer, you know, I think would have been better served if we were in a recording studio. Uh, because there's only so much you can do with that kind of material in a rehearsal, you know, so it's a different when, I mean, one day I remember he, he pulled out No Values which ended up on the Broad Street soundtrack. And, and he said, you know, he'd dreamt a Rolling Stones song. And, you know, tackling a tune like that, where you can really just be a rock and roll band, um, was, I think, more apropos of the circumstances than ballroom dancing or average person or those kind of songs. Uh, as it turned out, when Paul finally did No Values, he really didn't do it quite that way. So, you know, sometimes... Um, I think I look back in it and I, I realize that the that you had the different aspects of Wings, Wings as a rock band, but also Wings as a pop group, and how many of the hit singles were pop records, but the um, the 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 kind of the soul of the band was was at least that much rock and roll, um, and. I think, you know, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, a song like Rock Show and, and a song like Silly Love Songs, you know, but, but one understands why the Silly Love Songs would be the, you know, the top 10 hit versus Rock Show being the album track. I mean, it's a different musical environment. Yeah. So what's this? So these were mostly just Paul McCartney songs. There were not really, there may have been one or two Denny Lane songs. In there. Yeah, there weren't any Denny songs in the, in the, that tug of war, Pipes of Peace repertoire. I mean, it was really, at that point, um, Paul was, you know, kind of pursuing his own stuff. I mean, the only, there's only one Wings album that was really truly open to the band members contributing. Um, in general, 
Um, it was Paul or Paul and Denny or Paul and Linda. Um, you know, and back to the egg, Denny only has again and again and again. It's just the one song. Um, so, but, but Denny, you know, the thing about Wings was that the energy of the band, what Denny brought to it, what Linda brought to it, um, of the core band, Paul, Linda and Denny, was, was a very, it was very strong and it was very integrated and very recognizable. I mean, the sound of Wings backing vocals is, was a, a important sound on, on radio in the 70s. I mean, along with what the Carpenters were doing with harmony, what the Bee Gees were doing with harmony. It was, um, but with a rock kind of sensibility involved in it too, was, I think, you know, it, it stood the test of time to a large extent. And there's, a, a, um, there's an interesting mix of Wings fans because there are, you know, having worked in the, the last version of Wings, Back to the Egg has a little different fan contingent to Band on the Run, for example. I mean, there are Wings fans that encompass the whole Wings span, as it were. But, but there are also, you know, I, I've encountered a lot of musicians who grew up on Back to the Egg. Now, I know, like, for example, Harry Styles is a big fan of that album. And I know that because my daughter Ilse co-wrote Treat People with Kindness. <laughs> so... I, and I got to play on the record, so. So uh, there is a story from the Back to the Egg sessions where Paul brought in an idea for a single and gave all the band members a try at writing it. And how much truth is that to that story? Yeah, I don't, you see, I don't remember it that way. What I remember is that we had a meeting on a Friday and we were about to go into... Um, Paul had created a studio in the basement of um, his office in Soho Square because we couldn't get into Abbey Road to mix back to the A. So he recreated the control room of, of Abbey Road Studio 2 in the basement so that we could mix the album using an EMI console with the EMI reverbs coming in over high resolution phone lines. And, you know, it was just like being in Abbey Road, except we were in Soho Square. And... Um, on the Friday, we had this meeting where we all sat around in a conference room and, and discussed kind of what was next. And, and it was, okay, well, we need a single. And Paul didn't want a single coming off of the album. He wanted something fresh. And um, I, I distinctly remember the conversation went, well, what, you know, what did you do in the Beatles? And he said, well, you know, we'd write one over the weekend. And so my recollection is it was, okay, we'll write one over the weekend. Um, Steve, I know Steve remembers it differently as being something of a competition. I could never s imagine a wing single that wasn't written by Paul McCartney. And, and as at that point also in my career, I really wasn't considering myself to be a songwriter or a composer. I had one tune that we recorded, Maisie, that was recorded during the Back to the Egg sessions, which was actually kind of the first thing that I'd written. Um, and... You know, Paul came in on Monday morning with day, Daytime, Nighttime, Suffering, which is really one, I think, of one of his finest songs of that era. And there was just no way that anybody else was going to get a look in on that. The issue was that we were not in Abbey Road. The, you know, and Paul wanted to record it that day. So we set up the drums in this little kitchenette area, in, at just as part, which is part of the basement, and, and ended up cutting that song that day. And then 
worked on it during the week and also finished up Goodnight Tonight, which was the one that became the single, the A-side of the single. Um, so for me, it was, you know, I never saw it as a competition. It was really more of, you know, here's an assignment, write a single. I don't think you would have picked something like Maisie or even though this was on the album again and again and again over something over one of his songs when it was really his group. Well, and th there was there was just no um, there was no precedent for it because there had not been a Wings single that was not written by Paul. Or at least co-written by Paul. Yeah. So after that album, he went on the Wings UK 1979 tour. And there were some very interesting stage props, including a uh, robot. What are you experiencing <laughs> with that robot? Well, the robot was just a gag, really, because the, you know, um, on Goodnight Tonight, the, the track was cut to a drum machine, which was, you know, and it, th that period, I mean, drum machines were fairly new. And just the idea, you know, of having something representative of a machine which the robot was just you know so that you could kind of kick the song into gear um, the the thing that that I, baffled me was the um was the snow because we we were doing wonderful christmas time which um you know was was a single at that point um, and nobody had told me that there was going to be fake snow and so I'm, you know, I'm singing, you know, the choir of angels uh, bit in, in the song. And I open my mouth and all this snow comes down. And I get a mouthful of like, you know, plastic snow, which was very amusing to the people in the front row. Um, but, um, you know, that was, I mean, that tour was pretty low tech. I mean, there wasn't a lot of, you know, it was a th mostly theaters, although we did play Wembley Arena which is a large venue, um, but, but it was not a flashy show. I mean, there wasn't, you know, we didn't have the lasers. We didn't have the, we didn't even do Live and Let Die for that. You know, the, the focus was a lot more on the Back to the Egg stuff and, and you know, a few Beatles songs in there. Um, and we didn't do a lot of the Wings hits. I mean, it was very much, I think Paul was just wanting to kind of give the band an opportunity to, to, to kind of express its own identity. Um, and I think that the, especially the Glasgow, the second night in Glasgow, the one that was bootlegged as uh, Last Flight, I think gives a, a pretty strong indication of where the band was going. Considering, you know, we had not played out a lot. Did you really think that the Japan, did you think the Japan tour would be more uh, a little more powerful than the, uh, not powerful, but a little more ornate and less. Uh, oh, well, there was more, pop. there was more going on for Japan. I mean, the repertoire had changed. We had added Live and Let Die, Let Them In. We were going to do an, doing another day because that had been a big hit in Japan. Um, and so, you know, we, it was, it was kind of ramping up at that point, but of course we never got a chance to, um, to actually see where it was going to go. Was there any um, was there any amount of idea that they were going to do more places after Japan if Japan hadn't gone had it did? Well, there was certainly some talk about the idea of doing you know doing some touring in America, um, 
had we done it in the summer, I mean, you know, July of, of 1980, we had number one record with, with the live version of Coming Up. Um, so that would have been a good, good timing with that. Um, I think the issue was that Paul and Linda were just really getting tired of having a band. Linda especially, because she, you know, she now had four, there's four kids, and she's kind of, I think, was just kind of getting to the point where she was done with it. Um, so there was that cross current of, you know, on one hand you have the band, which was really starting to kind of gel as a rock and roll entity. You have Paul going off in a pop direction as an artist, and then Linda really, you know, because Linda was so integral to the band, Linda starting to lose enthusiasm for actually, you know, doing what's involved with the band, which is, you know, all the, the touring. I, I'm not sure she was really up for another world tour. Yeah. I can't speak for her, but that's my, my impression. So it was really, you know, it was, it was a, a changing era too. I mean, we'd, you know, we'd moved out of the 70s and into the 80s and, and music was changing and the business was changing and it was, um, I think, you know, it just kind of wings came to a natural end at that point. Also, Linda had a number in that tour, which she didn't have in the 76 tour. Say that one more time. She was doing a song in the 79 tour. Yeah, we did Cook of the House, you know, because Paul was being kind of democratic about it. You know, wanted to give her a, um, a spotlight. I mean, Paul played, you know, we did Hot as Sun from the McCartney album because Paul wanted to play something, you know, where he played lead guitar. Um, you know, it was... Um, uh, in many respects, that 79 tour was, was kind of a little bit of a back-to-basics kind of thing. Yeah, and that people seemed really to like it that way, too. I mean, the way the stage was set up with the speakers kind of, you know, the Marshall stacks were flown you know, up above it. People seemed to like that, that feeling like they were almost in a recording studio or something. It was um, not the kind of grand gestures that, you know, one would associate with with the kind of the big stadium touring. That was really the last time Paul McCartney really did a uh, tour where it wasn't really Beatles heavy. It was just well, yeah, because there was no. I mean, Wings was not a Beatles heavy band. You know, there were some Wings songs in the Wings Over America set list. I mean, or rather, some Beatles songs in that set list, but. I mean, we did let it be. We did got. We opened. We've got to get you into my life. But I think that part of the motivation there was that Earth, Wind, and Fire had had a hit with it shortly before that, um, and that kind of motivated Paul to, you know, cover his own his own tune. Um, we did Fool on the Hill, you know, yesterday. Um, but but. At that point, Paul was still, you know, it was still very much, I'm Paul McCartney artist rather than Paul McCartney former Beatle. Um, wasn't until really into the 90s. I mean, remember, Wings, uh, Paul didn't tour again until 89 after Japan. Um, you know, so that's the best part of a decade with no touring. And then, you know, he, he really, I think with, with Broad Street, he started to kind of revisit Beatles songs. Um, and, it, you know, by the 90s, you know, it really, you know, Beatles songs started to creep in and eventually they became kind of the main thrust of his set list. And then it was kind of, okay, let's, let's hear some wings. 
you know, and that, that, you know, so wings kind of like started to creep back in again in recent years. But whenever, whenever I've seen Paul doing wing songs, I always miss Linda and Danny. I always miss that sound. Yeah, there was a story going around that there have been small, small amounts of uh, consulting about a wings reunion, but it wasn't really going to happen without Linda. No, it couldn't. And Paul said, no, no wings without Linda. That's really the big part of the wings harmony. Well, not just the harmony, but the whole spirit of the band. Because Linda had a very rock and roll soul. And the, she just was, was really kind of, you know, it, it just wouldn't have been the same without her. It wouldn't have been wings. So... That's completely understandable. You know, I, I'm, I'm musical director for a concert that's happening this weekend, a streaming concert where, where we're doing all Wings repertoire. And, you know, when you really start digging deep into those songs and, and how, how the backing vocals work and how integrated the backing vocals are into the songs um, and, and the range of the repertoire, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, you know, going from Helen Wheels to Arrow Through Me, it's, you know, it's very different, very different musical sensibility, but it all works within the context of, of what Wings was. Yeah. So what was it like doing the uh, Back to the Egg TV special, which was the uh, group of videos that was broadcast? That well, I mean, we spent a week doing videos. You know, the first video we did was actually the Good Night Tonight one, um, which was really quite a thing. Um, I, we did it at, at a dance hall in London called the Hammersmith Palais, which uh, I had actually played at when I was um, right out of college. I, would, I played there on weekends and it had this revolving stage. It was the only large revolving stage um, that was available uh, for a video shoot. And um, that was, it was kind of a fun day. And that was really, you know, the first time that Wings got to kind of really jam and just play for a bunch of people because we had a fairly large crew for that. Um, we had done the video for um, I've Had Enough up in Scotland, but that was kind of an all-nighter with one camera and, and it was not as involved as the um, Good Night Tonight one. And then the same team did, we went to the castle, went back to Lim Castle where we recorded some of Back to the Egg. And that same team filmed, you know, all those videos. And, and it was, you know, it's like, uh, on one level it's fun. Um, on another level, it's, um, it's a, you know, doing that kind of filming is a bit of a chore because there's, you, there's a lot of waiting around. You, know, you have to things. You have to wait for sets to be dressed, and you have to wait for lighting to be set, and then you might do a, a, a pass, and then wait an hour before you do the second one. I mean, it was um, uh, it. You know, those kind of things are a lot of work. Um, and then after that, I mean, we also did the the wonderful Christmas time video um, later on in the year too. So that was really uh, for me. That was you know that was a pretty much a new experience was doing that, you know, videos were not that common. I mean, this was before MTV. So um, it was, um, you know, it was all part of the, the experience. 
recently, a friend of mine remastered that video special in 4K, got a lot, got a lot of news coverage. Interesting. I haven't seen that. I have a, uh, I have a, a tape, I have a three-quarter inch tape that was the first generation of the original. Um, but I haven't seen a, um, uh, can you hang on one second? I just got to respond to an email. Um, where were we? Um, 79 special. Right. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I, I didn't know that that had been, um, that had been, uh, redone that that's kind of encouraging because that would be part of the back to the egg. Uh, repackaging. When yeah, they finally, you know, finally do the box set. So. Repackaging. What's that? It's been a big thing. People have been wanting that repackaging. It's oh yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I think that that period for Paul is one that he has not a completely clear perspective on. Because Back to the Egg was not that well-reviewed when it came out, even though in subsequent years it's actually kind of gone up significantly in people's estimation. Um, and I think that it was not, you know, and also because it got busted in Japan, that kind of put a, a bit of a, um, a, bit of a, a cloud over, over that period. Um, but, but I think that, you know, we should be seeing something in the next few couple of years there are interviews in the 80s where he calls it his bomb set album he very much doesn't like to talk about it that much but but he even he has started to admit that there's things about it that he likes um and 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 i've read you know where he's been surprised i mean i know he was uh listening in the studio listening to arrows through me and actually kind of really started to realize that that there was a lot more in that album that he was giving himself credit for. Um, I think Chris Thomas was really helpful too um, in the way that that album was produced, uh, which is, I think, part of what gave it a more focused rock and roll sensibility too. Errol Brewing has also gotten a lot of recognition as being like kind of a precursor to some 80s pop. Well, I, I think the McCartney two album had a big influence on the early EDM people too. Arrow through me, I mean, you know, Erica Badu looped the intro and used that as a track for a song. Um, you know, I mentioned my daughter Ilse, who's a songwriter, and, and she has walked into writing sessions where they've been listening to that track because it, it's, a, it's a very cool record. And I think one of his strongest songs from that era. Um, but, you know, the, the, the part of the problem also was when Back to the Egg came out, the timing was not great. Um, the U.S. economy hit a recession right around then. Um, record companies had kind of got used to the idea that a, a successful album would sell five to 10 million copies, you know, uh, uh, you know, rumors, Saturday Night Fever. There was a lot, some major record sales going on in that period. But that all went off the cliff right around the time that, that Back to the Egg came out. 
also Columbia was a new out, new um, record label for Paul, and they didn't really know how to market him as well as Capital did. So there are a number of factors, uh, and I think all of those have conspired to somewhat color his perception of that particular time period. I mean, same thing. London Town hasn't come out yet either. You know, so. I think those will probably be the last two on the agenda. Yeah, I can. I also you did uh, two videos. You did the uh, I had enough and one of the Christmas time videos, but you didn't play on those songs. What was what was the other one? The you did I had enough and wonderful Christmas time. You didn't play on right. those songs. No, we did wonderful Christmas time as the um, on the tour. Um, but in both cases, Paul wanted the band in the video. So, you know, that's how it went. Yeah, Wonderful Christmas Time was actually uh, McCart a song from McCartney, too. No, it was a single. I, but it, I meant like um, McCartney. It was from, that, it was from that period, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a curious one. I mean, it's amazing. That's ended up as being one of the top 25 all-time Christmas songs. And it's had been covered by a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily um, one of his more compelling songs, but it seems to have a, a life. Yeah. So after that tour, a couple of days after the 79 tour ended, you went and did the concert for Campuchia. Yeah. Like, what was that like, doing a whole concert? It was a very long day. It was a very long concert uh, because we had Elvis Costello opened Rock Pile. So there were three bands on the bill and, and we, we went on fairly late. And I don't think that was our strongest set. I think that the Glasgow, second night of Glasgow was a stronger show. But, but the Campuchia one is the only one of that period that actually has professionally shot video to it. Um, but it was exciting, um, you know, being up on stage with, with the orchestra crowd and, you know, um, doing, you know, especially, I mean, what was really cool for me was when we did Let It Be. And, you know, that had been part of the wing set list on the tour. So when it came to the solo, I kind of glanced around, realized that nobody else, nobody was going to step forward and play the solo. So I just took it because that's what I've been doing for the whole tour. Um, and just that moment of being in front of all those players and Pete Townsend breathing brandy, brandy fumes down my neck, <laughs> looking over my shoulder, it was quite intense. Yeah, I can understand it being that way. Was that for, there was a bit of a, well, like a bit of a common idea with that tour being extremely under-rehearsed. I, well, I mean, we did three tunes. We certainly rehearsed it at Soundcheck. Many of the players that played on it were had played on on the session, the orchestra session. So, you know, I mean, when you have that many players on stage, there's a, a tendency for things to get a little bit ragged. But um, the wing set, I think we were a little, you know, we'd been off for Christmas, so we, we just, I think we were not, we were not quite on our game as much as the previous, previous batch of concerts were.
but nonetheless, it was still a good show. I mean, my, my brother was was at a number of the shows in London, and was at the Campuchia show, and he loved it. So, and the audience certainly had a good time. Yeah, that era of Wings, like, definitely, it's bit, it's a bit more of a cult thing. But once someone knows it, they just they really enjoy that era. Yeah, I, I, what I find interesting is how many people discovered the Beatles through Back to the Egg. That they became Wings fans and McCartney fans, and then went back because you know when the 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 especially you know people you know fans that were like you know in their early teens didn't um, didn't really have the background. To it, you know, so Wing Back to the Egg was kind of like their first McCartney album, um, and that actually, you know, that resonated pretty well. So, it's really um, it's interesting because it doesn't go away. You know, um, we really don't. Uh, I don't see it just disappearing. I thought that there would be a kind of a point where it would just cease to be relevant but it but it, it doesn't seem to be that way it keeps going yeah there's a little bit of video from the 1980 japan rehearsals of you guys doing eleanor rigby in a whole like synth arrangement what was that like we were just trying stuff out i mean we were in a very very small rehearsal room a tiny room um you know just in a farmhouse near uh near Paul's place in Peasmarsh. And um, we were just trying out ideas. I mean, we worked on uh, um, with a little luck, but it just didn't really work with the style of the show that we were putting on. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't even remember having done Eleanor Rigby, but we were trying just a whole, you know, just trying a whole bunch of stuff to see what worked. And the, the little bit of video was just a little promo thing that was done for the Japanese tour. So after that Japanese tour and after uh, being dismissed from Wings and Wings ended, you released, a, you released your first solo album, Standard Time, which includes the original 79 recording with Maisie, which has Wings on it. Right. Um, Standard Time, actually, Standard Time didn't come out for a couple of years. I didn't release that until I got to the States. Um, the, the, that was recorded in the summer um, and early fall of 79. In fact, we were, while Wings were rehearsing for the tour, I was in the studio pulling some all-nighters, getting the, the album mixed. Um, but I didn't get a deal for it in England. Um, and I eventually got, got it put out um, in, uh, I guess it must have been 82. Um, but it was re-released, the entire album was re-released uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and there was some really interesting stuff. The version of Stormy Weather that's on there with a, a large orchestra is really, was a lot of fun to do. Um, and, and the Maisie, the mix of Maisie, the version of Maisie that's on there was, was not the original um, Scotland 
uh, rough mix. It was uh, I added some slide guitar and uh, and we remixed it at Air Studios along with the rest of that project. Um, but you know, Paul Paul was assigning people um, to record stuff out of his music publishing catalog. I wasn't the only one, and. Um, I had been offered a deal, but I didn't like it, so it just kind of sat on the shelf for a while. Um, but that was a, a good experience. I was very happy to have the opportunity to really start to get get into the idea of doing something as a, as an artist rather than being as a sideman. Yeah. So in that now in the modern age, you've been a very prolific session and you even played on like so very successful albums well when i got to la i i picked up my studio career and um it just you know got into doing a lot of tv shows and records you know belinda carlisle's mad about you that album um the soundtrack to dirty dancing Played, even played with the Monkees at one point. Worked with George too, my third Beatle, um, in 86. And, and really just kind of eventually when I started putting out solo albums, I just had these two, actually three parallel tracks. I was studio musician, I was composer for doing some TV and movie scores and, and also putting out solo records and, and starting to tour as a, as a solo performer. And it's only really been in the last few years that I've truly got back into playing electric guitar in, in band situations. Um, I just really kind of that, that became kind of secondary to the fact that I was um, pursuing the solo acoustic thing. Yeah, so usually when I get, have a guest on the show, I ask them about their connections to Harry Nelson, who was a very, who was a very successful and interesting songwriter. And you worked with him in Beetlefest performances for, for I worked, I played with him at a Beetlefest and met him there. Um, I didn't really know Harry. Um, I have a group of friends who uh, were very close to Harry, um, including, um, uh, I have one friend who, who handles uh, Harry's publishing, uh, Harry's estate. Um, but I was not, you know, I never recorded with Harry uh, much as I would have liked to. Um, I mean, the closest thing to that was the, uh, there's some very rough sounding bootlegs of that Beetlefest 84 performance, which are, in my opinion, it's very unsuitable for release. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, at that point, Harry was not in great shape. Um, I mean, he really, you know, by the by the 80s, I think that he'd kind of, you know, lost the thread of his career. Um, so I really, you know, other than the fact that I'm a fan of his music, um, I don't really have much to contribute to the discussion on Harry. Yeah. So uh, we're about we're about through for our time. I have a uh, one or two more questions left. Okay. So really what was the uh, 
So what really tracks did you, were you really on with the Ringo stuff? Like you, I know you're on, were you on all those, all the songs Paul did with Ringo? I'm, I'm on all the songs that Paul did with Ringo. So there was Attention, Private Property, Sure to Fall. And Can't Fight Lightning. Lightning, which was just a jam. Um, in fact, I, the, the guitar, Ringo borrowed one of my acoustic guitars for that. Um, and he was strumming fairly furiously and cut his finger, and I have spots of his blood inside, on the label inside the guitar. So if we ever need to clone Ringo, I have his DNA. Um, and also we did, during those sessions, we did um, um, the uh, Love's Full Glory, Linda's tune, which is on the Wide Prairie album. Um, but that's what we did in, in France. Those, we didn't, I, I, don't believe, I don't recall that we cut any other tracks. In fact, the album was originally going to be called You Can't Fight Lightning, I think. Yeah, it's a very prominent bootleg of that material, which has a group of those songs. Yeah. Haven't heard that. It's basically just uh, the Stomp Spolero's album, but everything's a little, a little rougher mixed. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the time bootlegs of albums tend to be rough mixes or, you know, not the finished stuff. That's kind of interesting for a study perspective. Yeah, so do you have any more reflections on that, on your period of wings? On my experience with wings? Yeah. You know, I like to refer to it as, as getting my master's degree from McCartney University because it was a very educational experience. I learned a lot. Um, I um, learned about the, the business of music, the publishing side of it. I learned what it meant to be a creative artist. I learned a lot about making records, not from the studio musician perspective, but from the uh, producer engineering perspective. So I, I just learned a lot. It was a very productive time from that point of view. And, and I got to work with the Beatles, you know, up, up close. And, and I learned a lot about what I was capable of. Um, and I learned a lot about how, just how it all works. You know, the whole machinery of it, the, the publicity side of it, the, you know, the uh, photo sessions, the press releases, the, you know, album release parties, the going to radio stations and promoting. I mean, when, when, the Al when Back to the Egg came out, Steve Holly and I went to Europe. We did a, a tour around Europe, uh, going to radio stations and, and record stores. And, and then same thing, we went to New York and did a whole bunch of interviews. And, you know, just I'd never done that end of things. You know, so it was really my, my entree to a, a much more, a much broader perspective. You know, having been a studio musician, I'd certainly worked with a lot of artists and been in a lot of recording studios and, you know, been challenged as a player, but there was a lot more to learn. And, and that, that's really what the Wings experience was for me. And I knew going into it that it was not going to be open-ended because the fact that Wings had been through 
multiple incarnations before I ever got into the band. I knew that it was going to, you know, maybe last three years or so, which is what it ended up doing. So, um, and then, you know, I went on with the rest of my life, but with, with a, 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 a nicely buffed resume. So yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, You're welcome. I'll uh, see all the people who are watching my podcast on the next episode, which hopefully will be his 1974 on Goodnight Vienna. So thank you for coming on. Peace and love. Peace and love. All right. Cheers. Thank you very much.